when you are uh, taking a train, a bus, a tram, you do not even to think uh, need to think about do I have uh, some some cash with me? Do I have a, a ticket with me? Uh, you just jump into the public transport and and then you uh, you, you you have a, a let's say a fossil free uh, ride. We have made our public transport completely for free. If you're interested in European climate policy and energy policy, you will most certainly know today's guest. You might also know him by his nickname, Mr. Energy. I am of course talking about Claude Turms. He has until recently served as Minister for Energy in Luxembourg, and before that he was a prominent member of the European Parliament. Welcome to Planet A, a podcast on climate change. My name is Dan Jørgensen. I'm Minister for Development Cooperation and Global Climate Policy in Denmark. In a series of conversations, I ask some of the world's leading experts, policymakers, authors and activists how to stem climate change. We, the human species, are confronting a planetary emergency. For more than 30 years, the science has been crystal clear. The reason I believe we need to act now is because the facts are staring us in the face. The time to answer humankind's greatest challenge is now. L'accord de Paris pour le climat est accepté. So this gives us the best possible shot to save the one planet we've got. There is no plan B because we do not have planet B. You're listening to Planet A, a podcast on climate change and what to do about it. Today I speak with Europe's Mr. Energy, Claude Toombs, who has served as a Minister for Energy in Luxembourg and played a crucial role in European climate politics for decades. Claude, my old friend, uh, thank you so much for joining me here in this uh, podcast. Uh, it's my pleasure uh, to, to be a, a guest in your podcast. Yeah, so of course, just for the listeners, uh, I should uh, explain that uh, we know each other from from way back when we were both members of the European Parliament, uh, working with uh, climate issues and especially energy issues. And then, of course, also as uh, as colleagues, uh, ministers in the European Council. And uh, Claude, you are Mr. Energy. That's how uh, your colleagues uh, see you. Definitely, I see you. Huge knowledge, uh, huge uh, determination and drive in this very important uh, agenda and also even before it became a, a modern theme to talk about and high on the political agenda in all countries you've been there for for several decades now so thank you so much first of all for for your efforts in this what got you started uh, in energy politics i mean even before as i said it was uh, high on the agenda um so what got me started is a bit of a, a funny anecdote in my village Uh, there was uh, a plan for a high voltage grid, and it was really badly planned. And, and high voltage and the transformation station. And so at that time, I I uh, I I, uh, I was able to uh, to to. So I, I ran a, a campaign against. And uh, interestingly, when I look back, uh, you were only allowed to sign uh, against the line if you bought two energy-efficient light bulbs. And it had a huge success. And at the end of the day, uh, it was a good campaign because the energy security was not uh, at a threat, uh, but the line was uh, built uh, in a more sophisticated way. So that uh, that was the quick start. That was 
uh, mid of the 80s. And then um, I very soon afterwards, I became the um, friend of the Earth Luxembourg, a person in charge of uh, energy at that time, ozone. Uh, and uh, and then very soon, uh, starting end of the 80s, also working on, on climate uh, and uh, being active even before COP1. <laughs> so, but but from working as uh, as an activist and in NGOs and with even a very local uh, energy-related matters, uh, you, you then became a member of the European Parliament and were part of making legislation that, that has affected the energy system of uh, all of Europe, and you were there for, for many, many years. What would you say was the most important changes that you were part of uh, making happen in your years in Brussels? So I, I became elected in uh, 99 uh, and stayed until 2018. And so the first legislation I was involved in was uh, the 2002 legislation on creating a European electricity market. And I think one of the most important decisions was to separate the grid operations from uh, producing electricity and selling electricity. If we would not have done mm. this in beginning of the 2000s, uh, the then time oligopolies like EDF, uh, E.ON, RWE, um, they, would, they, they had so many assets in fossil, Uh, and nuclear that they would never have allowed uh, flourishing the flourishing of the renewables. So um, separating the grid from the other interests in the uh, electricity system was key. Uh, and that created then, of course, also neutral players, uh, transmission system operators, which then gathered together in NCOE, which is now a very powerful integrator Uh, this federation of all the high-voltage grid operators in Europe, they are de facto the ones which enable us to have a free flow of more and more green electrons from south of Portugal uh, to, the, to, to basically east of uh, Estonia. And that is a huge asset because the more renewable energy you have, uh, the bigger the geographical area you, you uh, integrate them into, uh, the cheaper and the more reliable the, the system is. So that was key. And then the second uh, key legislation was, of course, the 2008 uh, renewable, elect, uh, en renewable Energy Directive. At that time, uh, Europe had hardly 10% uh, of renewables. Uh, in electricity, it was 15%. And then we, in that legislation, we obliged all member states, all 27, to double the share Uh, to 20% and in electricity, that meant going from 15% mainly only hydroelectricity to uh, huge amounts of solar, of wind onshore. And uh, this renewable uh, directive of 2008 obliged also uh, the member states, which were close to the sea, like uh, UK and Germany, uh, to start uh, what Denmark had already done, which was Uh, offshore wind, which is a huge asset uh, in winning the race against uh, dangerous uh, climate change. So I would say um, the separation of the grid and of, of the rest, uh, the renewable uh, energy directive, and then uh, I was also able in 2012 with an amendment to oblige all Europe to have 
uh, in new buildings, near zero energy systems, which means fossil free systems. So which helps us, of course, now enormously uh, to uh, get uh, fossil out of at least new buildings in a very rapid way. These are extremely important decisions made by the EU. And of course, if we look at how it started uh, when, when you were a part of this uh, in, in the late 1990s uh, and, and what has happened uh, until now, the progress has been enormous. And of course, the new renewable energy uh, legislation and new energy efficiency legislation as a part of the Fit for 55 package is, is just the latest very big progress on this. And I think that it's important for us to also share with the listeners this progression because I remember when I, as a young man, started being very, very interested in, in the European Union and, and had many discussions with my uh, fellow students at university. Some of, some of the ones that were most engaged in, in the green causes, so members of uh, green NGOs and others, they were actually against the European Union because they thought that the union would be the lowest common denominator and that it would lead to, to a, a less... Uh, ambitious uh, policy in different countries on on climate change, for instance. And fortunately, they were wrong. What actually happened was uh, the European Union has, for decades now, been able to make decisions that is absolutely necessary for all countries to make a, a green transition. Uh, this is a leading question, but would you would you agree with me, Claude, in in this uh, analysis? Yes, I think. Um on renewables, we would never be where we were, where we are today without uh, European policymaking, uh, because you needed also the creation of a, uh, an all-over EU uh, electricity market to make it able to transfer, uh, for example, yeah. the Danish uh, electricity over to, to Sweden or to Germany uh, when, yeah. when, when you have an access. And then, uh, if I can give an, another example, uh, we have transforms the car industry in Europe uh, by one big EU, EU uh, legislation, which is the CO2 and cars legislation, where we said to the European, not only to the European car manufacturers, but to all the world car manufacturers, if you want to sell a car in Europe, this car has to be more and more fossil free. And that opens the door mm. for the uh, electric battery electric vehicle revolution, uh, which we see now. And I am pretty sure that if we would not have decided it in Europe, I'm, I'm not sure that the Chinese would have engaged also in the same speed as they are doing now into that uh, electric, uh, battery electric revolution. Because the Chinese often look to Europe to see, okay, where is the next uh, lead market? or what, what, Where is technology going? Uh, when Europe created systems to promote solar, China went into solar. Uh, when Europe went into electromobility, China went into electromobility. So, so um, the European Union is the only way for Europeans to have a say and to have an impact, a positive impact, even on world uh, politics. Yes, I, I, I totally agree. Obviously, both you and I represent countries that are at the forefront of this, and 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 quite often we've also. Uh, both of us been quite frustrated that things were not moving fast enough or, or wasn't ambitious enough in the European Union. But bottom line is, uh, from small countries, Luxembourg and Denmark, I mean, we can do whatever we want as a country. If we don't manage to get others to follow us, then 
then nothing will will happen of significance. And I, I also have to admit that on, on many issues, even though we consider ourselves as, as a front-runner country in Denmark, and I would also say it's fair to say that we are on many issues, still there are issues where it is actually the European Union as such uh, that drives uh, the, the change, even in, uh, even in Denmark and, and I assume also in, in Luxembourg. Yes, uh, that's, I think it's uh, good, but uh, that change was possible because we had um, uh, constructive and positive majorities in the European Parliament. Um, yeah. And, and uh, I think that uh, uh, for our listeners, it's important to understand that all EU legislation is, is basically negotiated between the EU governments and the European Parliament. So we, we need a progressive, climate-sensitive Uh, European Parliament, uh, and so when you go to uh, vote uh, next year in May or June, uh, be aware that your vote will uh, determine if Europe will continue to be a leader in uh, in, in such an important issue like uh, climate policy. Very, very important point. Uh, maybe we should just clarify for also listeners outside of Europe, maybe even some Europeans that don't have the facts completely straight. The European Union has three main organizations. It's uh, European Commission. They have the monopoly on putting forward new proposals for legislation. The negotiations and the decisions are then made in two other institutions. One is the Council. Here we have uh, ministers from all countries, one minister from, from each country. On most issues, they will have to make legislation in combination with the European Parliament. And that's the third institution. The European Parliament then has members from every country, but according to size. So obviously Germany has more members than Denmark and Luxembourg. And the European uh, Parliament is also organized in, in a way that means that it's actually party groups. So when I used to be a member from, from Denmark, I did not uh, sit next to my Danish colleagues arguing the Danish cause. I was a member of the big uh, socialist social democratic group, and I would be arguing on behalf of that group in negotiations. So basically what you can say is it's a checks and balances system where you have the national interest represented in the council and you have the national interest plus also uh, ideological uh, party divided interests represented in the party groups. And then of course, the ideal is that the commission represents the interests of, uh, of the EU as, as a whole. So therefore, I totally agree with you, Claude, When <laughs> Europeans go to, to vote next next summer uh, for the European elections, unfortunately, the, the turnout is not usually that high in different countries, which is a little bit strange because probably the most important vote that you'll ever cast if you if you go to that uh, election, because very, very often the people elected to the European Union has bigger influence on issues like environment, uh, climate, consumer affairs and others than the people you would vote for in a, in a local election. I think uh, also both of us have been in that institution. And uh, also when I look back, uh, it's clear that uh, you as an individual Danish member of uh, the European Parliament or me as an individual member uh, of the European Parliament from Luxembourg, when we were really active and doing legislation, we had more impact than any uh, single uh, legislator can have in our uh, smaller EU countries. Yes, and I would also say even as a, as a minister now, when when I uh, travel to, to uh, council meetings in Luxembourg or in, in Brussels, what happens before that is that I 
first I, I negotiate internally in my own government. Then I negotiate with the Danish parliament to get a mandate. The mandate that I then get, I, I travel to Brussels and I discuss that with my uh, colleagues from all of the European countries. And we then decide on a mandate that we give to our negotiator. That negotiator then goes and negotiates with a representative of the parliament. And sometimes that person used to be me or you <laughs> when we were members of the parliament. So in, in, even though it might sound awkward and strange, sometimes being a one member of the European Parliament, you would have, uh, you would also represent, of course, the majority in the Parliament, but still you would have personally much bigger influence than, than you sometimes do as a minister. Yes, and uh, as Denmark is a bigger country than Luxembourg, uh, you can imagine that it's even more truthful for, yes. for Luxembourg and being. So now, so we've talked a lot about the, the European Union and the European Parliament. It wasn't really actually on my agenda for our talk, Claude, but I'm glad we did it. And it reminds me that I should also invite guests from the European Parliament to, to my podcast. But what I wanted to talk to you about is, of course, uh, the challenges that we face in, in the European Union, but also globally with regards to decarbonizing uh, our energy sector. There's no doubt that the energy sector is still the biggest problem we have globally uh, with regards to climate change. If we don't manage to reduce our emissions there by fundamentally changing away from fossils and into renewables, there's no way uh, we can stay under 1.5 degrees. I, I, I trust you agree with that uh, statement. So my question to you is, what are the biggest challenges concretely? And what can be done about them? Um, so uh, I think the big challenge is to go fast in reducing uh, the, the uh, basically the, the volume of fossils and not to lose uh, basically a broad consensus uh, in, in, in society. Um, because heating, uh, if I so you have, it's about heating, it's about industry, it's about uh, transport. And um, heating is uh, millions of houses where every individual um, owner of a house will have to to uh, basically take the decision to replace his old uh, oil and gas boiler by by a new one. So uh, and that um, needs, of course, very sophisticated policies. So in Luxembourg, we we have a, a I would say a triple A policy on uh, advising um, and then uh, giving uh, support, so financial support. Uh, and third is reducing uh, bureaucracy so that it's easy for everybody uh, to understand uh, so or, or to to have a, a, a to replace his old fossil heating system by a new one um, when it comes to transport we are um, now probably the number one country in the world investing in public transport so three four times what uh, other uh, countries are doing. We have to do it because governments before were not so active and we have made our public transport completely for free uh, also to to make it uh, basically a no-brainer. When you are uh, taking a train, a bus, a tram, you do not even to think, uh, need to think about do I have uh, some, some cash with me? Do I have a, a ticket with me? Uh, you just jump into the public transport and and then you uh, you 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 have a uh, let's say a fossil free uh, ride, uh, and then of course uh, the cars we have we are now trying to uh, move some away from fossil. So we have uh, in these days thirty percent of our new sales are uh, electric uh, drive uh, cars, and uh, we have also 
And in order to, to make it easy for citizens in Luxembourg to go that way, we have uh, a very um, sophisticated um, system of uh, charging stations, uh, both uh, in the public area, but and we give we are also giving a lot of um, support if you uh, have your own charging station at home or if the filling station, which is still selling fossil uh, oil and gas, is is gasoline, is also moving over to uh, to uh, charging your electric vehicle with uh, green uh, electrons. So I think that is one. Uh, so electrification of heating. Uh, transport of industry. And then, of course, uh, the other leg is uh, renewable uh, electricity. And uh, we have uh, multiplied our solar installation with 20 uh, compared to five years ago. Uh, we have uh, we are installing a lot of uh, onshore wind uh, big turbines. And uh, we are teaming up uh, with the champions uh, on, on offshore wind like Denmark, uh, also to so, so that in, to make sure that our imports of electrons to Luxembourg uh, will get away from fossil and nuclear over to uh, green uh, electrons. No doubt that many of the decisions that you've made in, in Luxembourg also make you leaders in the world on this. And I, I, I very much hope that others will feel inspired by this. In a, in a minute, I will ask you a, a question as the devil's advocate, because there's a big difference between being a, a, a small, uh, wealthy country in, in the middle of Europe and a big developing nation in the south of Africa, obviously. But before I get to that, I, I want to ask you a different question because you were kind enough to mention Denmark as leaders on, on offshore wind. Uh, and and I, I can tell the listeners that I've often been amazed of your knowledge about the Danish energy system. I can even admit that sometimes you've, you've educated me on details in the Danish energy system that I, as former energy minister, was not 100% aware of. So your, your knowledge is, is astounding, uh, Claude. So I, I'd like to use that as uh, and ask you, instead of me uh, uh, putting on uh, my, my own uh, perspectives on, 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 the, on the Danish case, what, in your opinion, uh, Claude, is it that we in, in Denmark have, have done right and what can we do better? So my understanding of, of the energy history of Denmark is that Denmark was the country which was most penalized by the OPEC uh, oil boycott uh, back in the, in the 70s. And that was the moment when you started all, all already to think about, uh, for example, uh, systematic uh, heating, uh, central district heating systems. And uh, you had first... Uh, projects on, on first onshore wind and then offshore wind. And uh, what is amazing about Denmark is that you were able to combine this with um, doing good business. Uh, so uh, today uh, you go, uh, Dan, you, you go to, to the countries in, 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 in development countries, but you also go uh, to China, to India. Why? Uh, also because Denmark has basically some of the world energy champions be it Danfoss and Grunfoss on, on the most efficient pumping systems, uh, be it uh, Vestas uh, for, for, for the, the, the wind industry. So uh, what, what is really amazing for me as somebody looking from outside to Denmark is this uh, being having the political courage to be a front runner, to create a lead market uh, on certain devices like central district heating systems, which then nurtured 
the business opportunities for Danfoss and Grünfoss, and then uh, which are for, because you need pumps, uh, intelligent pumps to to uh, circulate the, the hot water, which is in these central district heating systems, and then uh, being able also to to get uh, Vestas, and then uh, today also uh, Erstat, which is uh, the world biggest uh, offshore wind uh, developer. Um, so. Uh, which shows that the countries w where where policymakers uh, are the most daring and courageous to create a new market to to move the frontier um, are also often the countries which then get not only the environmental uh, benefits but also the economic uh, benefits and and uh, I don't know what is the share of of the energy industry in the Danish overall. Um, um, wealth, uh, but I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that there's not a single other country in the world where, where uh, energy business uh, engineering uh, is, is, has such a prominent role in creating wealth uh, for a population. And, and I think that's an example which, uh, which is shining. And uh, when you t see today China, China is <laughs> de facto uh, copying Denmark. And that's the result of uh, Sven Orkin going already, your predecessor in the early 90s to China, uh, and uh, all energy ministers of Denmark all always being very active. And the Chinese looking not only at what Germany was doing, but also what Denmark was doing uh, when it came to business opportunities. Yes, well, th thank you so much for that. We, by, by all means, we, we are not perfect. We also still have a lot of work ahead of us. But I, I do think it's it's fair to say that one of the reasons why we are able to also um, work together with, for instance, China and, and India and South Africa and Indonesia and others in their green transition is that we've developed methods and systems where we make a green transition whilst at the same time being able to have growth. I mean, for these countries, it's simply not on the table to speak about any solutions that would lead for them to slow down their growth because they still have millions of people that they need to uh, scale up the living standards for. And that needs to be at the core of everything you, you do. Now, where we then, of course, um, face challenges like, like everybody else and where we still have a lot of work to do is the hard-to-abate sectors. So, for instance, uh, we have the biggest uh, maritime transport company in the world. It's also Danish, uh, Maersk. They are working very hard now to decarbonize uh, their shipping, but it's not easy because you don't really have the alternative. You cannot electrify a a, a big uh, container uh, ship. That's that's simply not possible yet. So they're working on developing uh, alternative fuels, and right now they they actually have just inaugurated the first uh, ship that sails on green methanol, which is great. But in the future, uh, hopefully, we'll go to even greener. Uh, alternatives. How, how do you see these hard-to-abate sectors, both with regards to transport, being uh, aviation and maritime transport, but also uh, in industry like uh, steel or cement or the chemical industry? The, really, the, the most difficult uh, will be to convert the, this uh, very energy-intensive industry like steel, uh, aluminium, uh, chemicals. Uh, the good news is that uh, I think that the CEOs of these countries, uh, these, these uh, companies have, have got it uh, and that they uh, are now, for example, like ArcelorMittal in Luxembourg, 
They are now on the way to produce green steel uh, because the electricity which goes into their electric arc furnaces is uh, green electricity and then um, the uh, green hydrogen. So uh, green hydrogen and then the sub projects of uh, products of green hydrogen like um, e-fuels, um, that is the second leg. It's a smaller leg than electrification, but that's the second leg, which is uh, very, very important. Um, and of course, uh, that is huge quantities of electricity, which you need to uh, to uh, have up and running in order to produce the green hydrogen, because uh, electricity goes to an electrolyzer where you lose two thirds of your energy, uh, and then you have one third of your energy left in the form of uh, green uh, hydrogen or other molecules. Um, and for that, I think we need now uh, a global uh, cooperation, um, uh, global coordination. And um, what I see is that Europe will be the first big market for uh, green hydrogen imports. And I hope that we will be able to have a common uh, purchasing arrangements uh, between the European countries and then creating a stable long-term market for uh, countries in the South, uh, Morocco, Oman, uh, Namibia, uh, maybe South Africa uh, and others. Um, and while we will do it, uh, we will also allow these countries to have um, to be front runners and to be lead markets for their own population. It will create jobs in these countries and uh, these countries will be very attractive also for other uh, industries to locate uh, because they will have cheap electricity through big scale renewables and they will have green molecules which you need, for example, to produce uh, part of the, the, the green steel. So I think the, the, the coordination and cooperation between uh, European countries and some of the developing countries which have very big renewable assets, that is one of the most promising areas of teaming up uh, together uh, and moving the show uh, rapidly. Yes, and that, that, that brings me to ask the question that I indicated earlier, which was the one of the devil's advocate clause. So, so you and I both agree that it's important that our countries are front runners and we need to transform our own economies and do all the right things. But I also have to say that when I travel in developing countries, uh, for instance, right now, I'm, I'm recording this in, in Morocco. Yesterday, I, I went to see some of the devastating effects of climate change in this country already, a country that's also dealing with a lot of other developmental uh, issues and other poorer countries like uh, Nigeria or Ethiopia that I've visited within the last year, really their circumstances are so much different from ours. And they still face so many other developmental uh, challenges that are, that are on top of that being worsened by climate change right now and accelerated by climate change. And, and finally, some of them, like for instance, South Africa or, or Indonesia, are countries that are highly dependent on income from uh, coal and their, own, and their own economies are dependent uh, almost totally on energy from, from coal. For them, maybe listening to you and me, Claude, may sound a, a little bit too idealistic and maybe even naive sometimes as if we don't understand their very, very basic needs. 
Now, of course, I'm 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 posing this question deliberately in as the devil's advocate. But w- w- how how do you speak to leaders from these countries, and where is it that you can find common grounds? I think that um, these countries where, where you have coal, the, the you probably have also uh, other minerals, and the renewable energy. Uh, revolution, which is the core of the answer to the climate change, because uh, it is renewable electricity and renewable hydrogen, which will replace the fossil, needs input uh, minerals, uh, materials, uh, which are uh, which will then allow to to build a, a wind turbine or a, a solar cell or an electrolyzer. So, the first thing which I would really look into is. Um, speak to the um, basically the, 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 the people who have knowledge, geo, geological knowledge of what other resources, for example, a country like South Africa has, and then using also the the mining experience to to then uh, have a big scale development of these uh, minerals, and these minerals will have an extremely high value uh, because. Uh, the only way to, to win the race against climate change is to accelerate renewables and for renewables, you need these minerals. So I think the, the business opportunity for all these countries which have coal is with looking into, do we have other minerals and can we be a front run? Can we be a lead market, a lead producer for these uh, minerals? And then, of course, what I, the, the, it is, also about that when you produce these minerals, that you do not only export them uh, to the West or to China, but that you try to build a whole ecosystem of uh, at least semi-final uh, products around uh, these uh, mining um, areas so that you uh, keep also in South Africa or in Indonesia or in Morocco, uh, these at the, basically some of the value of the whole um, building of solar or of um, of, uh, of of wind or electrolyzers or, or heat pumps. So uh, I think that is where uh, I see a real uh, opportunity and also where we can uh, cooperate between front-running nations in Europe uh, like Denmark, who have often technology leaders and uh, countries which can uh, leapfrog. Um, very quickly into this, uh, the, the new world of uh, renewable energy. Well, I, I totally agree with that. And I think they are extremely good points. I would add to that, that almost all development, and this goes, I would argue, across the planet, countries that, that are in the developing stage. One of their main asks is that they need to be, they need to fight energy poverty. This means that all families need access to energy, both to heat their houses, but also uh, electricity uh, for, for all other purposes. And of course, the industries need uh, enough uh, energy. And the good news here is because of the way that the development has gone, right now, actually, uh, even offshore wind that used to be an extremely expensive way of making energy can now compete with coal in price. And certainly onshore wind and solar will very often be much cheaper and fossil alternatives. So really, we don't need to ask countries that are in a developing stage to slow down their growth. We can actually say, listen, you will have a better possibility of supplying your societies with the energy they need if you use renewables. Also, 
very often they will need decentralized energy supplies. And if, for instance, you have a big coal plant, coal power plant uh, to create electricity, you need a huge grid connected to that. And that, that grid very often is not there. It's much easier to make a local solution with a local grid connected to, for instance, an, an, a wind farm. And hopefully in a not too distant future, we'll be able to store some of the excess energy from when the sun is not shining or the wind is not blowing so that you will have also energy security there. So these arguments also very often I find are, are good ones. Now, very big problem internationally is that even though renewable energy is both more rational and cheaper, um, the investments in renewable energy in many developing countries are made impossible because uh, the companies uh, responsible, the institutional investors responsible normally for these investments will not uh, be able to run the financial risk because they are very often are not the enabling conditions in many of these countries that they would normally need. And also, and this is connected to that, very high interests. Now, many of the fossil investors don't face this problem because they have their own financing. <laughs> and, and for some reason, also the market uh, reacts uh, differently to fossil investments still, even though it should be the opposite. So I guess my question to you, Claude, then is, first of all, do you agree with that analysis? And second, what can we do to change this uh, international investment environment? I think you are, you're right. Uh, the, uh, Africa has, uh, the problem with Africa is not that they, they don't have sun. They have better sun, uh, sunny conditions. And, and so uh, sun solar energy is on the paper cheaper than in Europe. But uh, their problem is, uh, the, the world banking system and that the world uh, banking system is penalizing uh, developing uh, countries today. And I say this as a, uh, somebody coming from Luxembourg. So our biggest industry de facto is uh, banking, uh, investment banking. Uh, so we have we are the second largest uh, place on the world for investment funds. And so what uh, and we have also the European Investment Bank, which is uh, Europe's uh, and even world's biggest investment bank. Uh, in, in volume uh, bigger than the World Bank uh, is located in in, uh, in in Luxembourg. It's uh, basically I see uh, their building. Uh, it's 200 meters from where I'm sitting uh, in, in, in this very moment. So, what is our damned um, obligation in the in the Western European in the Western countries? And I, this is not only Europe. It's also Japan. It's uh, it's US. It's Canada. It's Australia. Is we have to change uh, our banks uh, into a system where uh, the renewable investments or the environmental friendly investment is the, is the investment which gets the lowest uh, interest rate. And then we need to set up the risking instruments uh, for the development countries. So, uh, and I think it, it would not be a rocket science uh, to have a big fund, for example, uh, created by certain Western donors for Indonesia's transformation or for South Africa's uh, transformation. And this de-risking, um, what is a de-risking instrument? So uh, I invest into a solar. If everything goes right, uh, this de-risking uh, is, uh, is uh, you do not need to, to take out money from that fund. If, uh, if something uh, problematic would happen, if there would be basically a default of the solar, uh, installation, which is very, very rare, then you would take money out uh, of that uh, de-risking fund. So um, 
what we need to set up, and that is something which also should be at the core of, of the COP, uh, which will happen uh, end of November, is really the, the Western uh, banking system needs uh, to be reformed uh, into, in, in a way that uh, basically de-risking uh, instruments which help investments in uh, development countries and uh, then, of course, uh, continue with what we have uh, started in Europe, which is the um, transparency uh, and uh, in the banking system and making sure that green investments are considered a lower risk than fossil investments and the lower risk in banking also always means lower interest rates. So, so that is uh, something which we in Europe uh, and in US and in Japan, all over the Western world, that we, that is really something we have to do now in order to make uh, to it, it easier possible for the development world to move into renewables. Very, very good points, uh, Claude. Now we, we are getting closer to where we need to end our conversation, unfortunately. But, but what I want to ask you here in the end, Claude, is you managed decades ago in 1999 to already there have visions for how the energy system should look like and how it's actually now ended up looking like today with a much higher degree of renewable energy. And that was back at a time when renewable energy was such a small part of the European uh, energy supply. So, so you've, you've done it before you've managed to foresee the future. So I'd like to ask you now, how do you think the world will look in 20 years uh, from now with regards to our global energy systems and and our fight against climate change? I think what will happen is two things. One is there will be very big uh, renewable installations, big solar onshore, big wind onshore, big uh, wind offshore, uh, thousands of megawatts. And in parallel, you will have almost on every uh, roof uh, or uh, be it a household or be it an industry, you will have your own uh, solar solar panels that will be combined with uh, with batteries. So um, the energy world of tomorrow will be a world where uh, you will have big installations and when where you will have very very decentralized installations. And in order to make uh, that world possible, you need a lot of uh, IT in the energy system. So um, grids. Uh, hardware is important, but what will be even more important in the next years is the digitalization of the energy system and uh, basically uh, the, the smart operation uh, of, uh, of all, all, all the smaller devices and, and allowing also the smaller devices when there is an excess of, of solar energy in a local level to, to go up and uh, to, to the higher voltage grid. So, um, it will be uh, really uh, very big and we have, which allows us to go very fast and then this decentralized. That is, I think, what will happen on the, on the production. And then, uh, of course, uh, the other huge challenge is uh, urban planning, uh, especially in the bigger cities. So we need what Copenhagen has done, uh, basically uh, by building safe lanes, uh, for bicycles, having more people now commuting in the morning to Copenhagen Center uh, in with their bikes and with their cars, uh, that is the other big revolution uh, which we need to spread. That is uh, 
very positive uh, visions for, for the future, Claude. I, I hope you're right, and I will definitely keep working alongside with you to, to make it happen. Uh, thank you so much for for taking the time to uh, to have this conversation with, with me, my friend. Um, it was my pleasure and my honor to be on your podcast. And uh, we have moved the show over the last uh, 20 years in Europe. And I think uh, I'm pretty optimistic that we will be able to move the show also at global level by teaming up uh, with, uh, with uh, the leaders, uh, the energy leaders of the development world. You've listened to Planet A, a podcast on climate change and what to do about it.